Coming to you from what feels like the center of the earth. Seriously, the desert is no joke. We have all the latest from Black Hat and B-Sides. For this week's interview, we have talked to NSS Lab CEO Vic Patak on how security reports are changing the way enterprises work with cybersecurity companies. Hacker Summer Camp Recap Part 1 on Securiosity. Let's go! Hello everyone, Greg Otto here with Jen O'Daniel coming to you from the swanky offices of NS8 in Las Vegas. Jen, nice digs around here, right? One of my favorite portfolio companies with amazing style. So we just finished up our great event for Mach 37, CIT, a bunch of other investment firms helped us out, talking to a bunch of entrepreneurs and hearing about how they've spun up their companies and what it takes to keep a cybersecurity startup thriving. Yeah, we talked to a bunch of companies, NSA, Virtual Security, Huntress Labs, Fortal Solutions, really fun conversations that we hope to bring to you over the next couple weeks. But for now, you all know what's going on, B-Sides, Black Hat, DEF CON, it's been a crazy week, so much so that we're going to have to stretch some of the news into next week's show, but let's get into what happened so far this week. So... At B-Sides, we learned vulnerability disclosure for medical devices has matured dramatically in a few short years as manufacturers have warned researchers and the threat of lawsuits has receded. On a panel, the FDA's Suzanne Schwartz said she hopes the number of device manufacturers with disclosure programs will jump from roughly 15 to perhaps 100 in the next year as the barriers to the process fall. Such programs are clearly needed as the healthcare industry faces down the persistent threat of ransomware. Jen, we've heard so many stories about ransomware hitting the medical field, so I got to think that this is a good step forward. Absolutely. It's just amazing how many stories we've heard. I've heard a lot about coordinated disclosure. I've been having a lot of those conversations even before Black Hat started. And there are a lot of companies that are starting to warm up to it. I think we recently have also done a story about how uh, the automobile industry is starting to realize that they need to wake up to coordinated disclosure. I mean, there's just nothing to lose. And and even as you look at um, companies like North Grumman, their CISOs talk to each other on a regular basis about what they're seeing and what's going on. And they are competitors, right? North Grumman with Raytheon, et cetera. But they talk to each other and they coordinate Um, things that are going on, so it just makes complete sense that other industries would too. Right. It's nice to see the critical infrastructure starting to realize that not everybody that is submitting bugs to them is out to extort them or cause damage. They just want to help everything be secure, just like everybody else. So Trend Micro spotted posts on an online forum advertising malware that can hack Bitcoin ATMs and thousands of dollars worth of cryptocurrency. For $25,000, the buyer gets the malware as well as a bank-style card loaded with the malicious code. The malware apparently exploits a menu bug in the ATM to disconnect it from the network, avoiding the usual alarms. The user can then steal up to over $6,000 worth of Bitcoin from the machine. Trend Micro suggests that as a natural progression from the multitude of ways hackers have targeted cash ATMs and exploited systems to acquire cryptocurrency. Greg, of course it's a natural progression, right? You know, I I try with our publication and with this podcast not to get too into FUD with the fear, uncertainty, and the doubt. But when it comes to cryptocurrency and the conversations that we've seen play out over the past six weeks with this Bitcoin ATM malware and the BitFi hackable wallet, I, I, I... Honestly, have no idea why people still sink 
thousands of dollars into cryptocurrency. I just don't. Like, I can understand if you want a Coinbase wallet and you want to dip your toe into it. I've done it. That's fine. But if you're like, I'm getting mining rigs and I'm going to get all these cold wallets and I'm going to get all of these altcoins and everything's going to be fine and this is the new wave, I'm sorry. I, 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 I think you're taking a huge risk and one that one that's staring you in the face and going, don't do this. You're just going to lose money. Like, I, talking about even the blockchain, yeah, I, I stammer over because I really can't wrap my head around the talk about the, the, the blockchain and how everything with cryptocurrency is going to revolutionize the industry when all, all the the blockchain does is just show you the point to where your money is gone. Like, oh, I, I I have the ledger right here that says, oh, my money's gone. Well, your money's gone. Like, is that really yeah, what I've you wanted over? Yeah, I've actually had um, five friends in the past month tell me that they've gotten ransom on their crypto coins, so on their Bitcoin. Yeah, like, why? Why? I, I don't understand it. I mean, I'm sure I'm going to catch some flack for this. I'm sorry. I'm just not a fan <laughs> of the market right now, so... Um, so there's an interesting project going on in West Virginia. Uh, West Virginia voters living overseas will soon have the ability to cast ballots using a mobile app that uses blockchain encryption. The state had tested the app called Votes during the May 8 primary election with voters hailing from two counties, and now it intends to make it available to all 55 counties following a security audit that found no blocking or critical issues during the pilot. Election security advocates, though, are not reassured, saying that West Virginians who choose to cast their ballots over a phone app will be exposed to risk that their votes could be corrupted. All of the risks and vulnerabilities present in other Internet transactions will be present. Marion Schneider, president of Verified Voting, told our State Scoop reporter, Jen, would you do this if you had the ability to do so? I think it's a good direction to go in, but probably we need to have some more regulations and assurances around whether or not the votes will get corrupted. Right. I think that this has the possibility of all of the mind-numbing blockchain pitches that I get. At its very root, I think that this is an interesting one. And I think that this would, in an ideal world, get voter turnout up because you wouldn't have to worry about taking some time off to go vote on election day or you could just or wake up right yeah you just wake up do it and and carry on however with all of the mobile problems that we have i mean there are ios android exploits huawei and zte have phones that the government won't even use um that there's there are too many attack vectors right now to make this a viable option. I, I really really want this to work because I, I I think that it's something that needs to be pushed into the 21st century the way that we vote. However, I, I just don't think this is the project that's going to push it that way. Best of luck. I, I hope it succeeds. I, I guess cautious. we'll see how it goes. So the term hackers usually means something entirely different in golf. And the organization that oversees professional golf in the U.S. would probably like to avoid dealing with the cybersecurity kind. The Professional Golfers Association of America was hit with a ransomware attack Tuesday, locking employees out of a crucial file hours before the start of the association's namesake tournament. According to Golf Week, PGA employees found they were locked out of systems that housed various banners, logos, and signage to be used for the upcoming PGA Championship. The tournament, which takes place at Ballerie Country Club in St. Louis, 
is one of professional golf's most prestigious tournaments. So, Greg, even sports are getting hit with ransomware. Yeah, this is really interesting to me because of what they attacked. When Immediately when I start reading about these attacks, my mind goes to, okay, well, who did it? And I, I don't have any sort of idea who would do this because it seems so minimal. Uh, yes, th- th- this is an asset that's going to set the, the PGA back. It's, it's graphics that were uh, tied to future tournaments and some other uh, collateral that was going to be used for the Ryder Cup tournament coming up. But it's a minimal loss to the PGA. Like the tournament that's going on right now, it's, it's almost just a slight embarrassment. The tournament went off. Nobody seemed to, to care outside of some cybersecurity circles. It's really interesting in that this was possible and that's what they chose to hit. Maybe they're big fans of golf or maybe they're not, right? I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, golf must be on their mind. Yeah, n- yeah it's, it's interesting. Right. This is something that even golf organizations and their IT teams uh, need to worry about. To more critical infrastructure than the PGA... <laughs> New research from Boston-based Cyber Reason offers a reminder that lower-skilled hackers, and not just the Russian military, are targeting U.S. power companies. Researchers set up a honeypot mimicking the operational environment of a big utilities power substation. Not long afterward, a determined hacker, which Cyber Reason does not think is affiliated with the nation-state, began scanning the honeypot for a bridge to its operational environment. One of the more concerning and less talked about things is the amateurs who get into these systems and then make a mistake, a cyber reason researcher told us. Uh, Jen, how interesting do you find it that seemingly amateurish hackers are getting to mess around with what they think is the grid? I sort of think that's like the holy grail of things to mess with, right? I mean, that is the most possible damaging thing you could do to a country like the U.S. where everybody is reliant on power. It really is something that even though that this was a honeypot, it attracted just somebody that was looking just to mess around and cause some havoc. I mean, we've seen so many headlines over the past two to three weeks that, oh my God, Russia's going to turn off the power and it's it's going to be really, really bad. And that's been some FUD that isn't exactly truthful. So something like this it, it interests me a little bit more in that it's just random people messing around. And that is a little bit more concerning because there's no geopolitical backing to to worry about there. It's just somebody going, I'm just going to mess with this. I don't know what it is, but we'll poke around and see what happens. But it also might be they're trying to make a name for themselves. Yeah, we see that all the time where it's an ego thing and it's just I'm going to hack this just because I can. So that is something interesting and and this research was very interesting and I implore you all to go read more about it on CyberScoop because this is one of my favorite stories of the week. All right. Well, the vast majority of Asia-focused security research examines government-backed groups. A new report shows that the region's dark web is becoming a fertile training ground for independent hackers to learn more skills and create new exploits. New York-based Insights released a report Wednesday that detailed a number of Asian countries' use of dark web. A key takeaway from the report is the way that Asian governments deal with censorship and internet access inhibit researchers from discovering exploits which are becoming cheaper and cheaper to build. Greg, you wrote this story. Can you dive a little deeper and talk about why this has researchers unnerved? So the researcher that I talked to about this was unnerved because the exploits that they're starting to find in Chinese-based dark web sites, even Chinese-based clear websites, ones that aren't on the dark web. So it's China, 
it's Japan, it's Indonesia, it's Vietnam, and they all have their own little communities. There is malware out there that they've never seen before, which is dangerous. The, the zero days are always the most lucrative and always the most dangerous malware. And he's talked to other companies because that's, as a, a good company, that's what you do when you're trying to protect against this stuff. Um, but he's talked to Kaspersky, he's talked to Trend Micro, he's talked to a number of other companies, and they're like, yeah, we see the same stuff and we're worried because we want to get it into our AV programs because we want those signatures in there because we want to guard against it. So it kind of shows the cat and mouse game and how all of these companies track all of these underground forums in order to figure out where the next attack is going to be. And this is a, you know, it's a securitist loop. It's it's the forever race. It's, it's what these companies do. So it's very, very interesting to get some insights into how these AV companies go about finding these signatures and making sure that their products detected before any other of these products come online. So back in DC, the Pentagon has issued guidance that prohibits Department of Defense personnel in operational areas from using location tracking features on devices, apps, or services such as fitness tracking technology. Deputy Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan wrote, Last week, in the new guidance, that rapidly evolving market of devices, applications, and services with geolocation capabilities, e.g. fitness trackers, smartphones, tablets, smartwatches, and related software applications, present significant risks to DoD personnel, both on and off-duty, and to our military operations globally. Jen, not surprising given what we know about apps like Strava and MyFitnessPal, right? No, it's really not. So if you, if you sort of think about some of the trackers on you know, smartwatches, and think about like a third world country or somewhere we've got soldiers in and they're wearing smartwatches. Um, and so all of a sudden you see these smartwatches lit up in a concentrated area where quite frankly, no one else is really wearing them. I mean, what, who do you think's there? Right. And I mean, the Strava thing really woke people up to this inside the DOD and at the NSA. Um, I know that there have been some closed door meetings about the way that these IoT devices really broadcast all types of signals. And hey, look, the the military is all about operational security, OPSEC. This is bad OPSEC. So it's logical and a no-brainer to shut it down. Absolutely. So OPSEC yeah. stays at a level to where the American military wants to have it. So, I mean, makes total sense. I get why they did it. And, um, you know, moving forward, we won't see those big maps uh, glowing in the midst of like Ethiopia or Qatar or Thailand or wherever we are. So yeah, about 15 months after the former federal communication commission CIO first claimed that the agency had been a victim of a DDoS attack. Agency leadership is now getting behind the narrative that the CIO allegedly lied. FCC chairman Ajit Pao put a statement out Monday ahead of an inspector general report that went live Tuesday. I am deeply disappointed that the FCC's former chief information officer, who was hired by the prior administration and is no longer with the commission, provided inaccurate information about this incident to me, my office, Congress, and the American people, Powell said. This is completely unacceptable. Greg, you guys were on this from the beginning, right? Yeah, when this story initially came out, uh, we wrote a story that questioned the DDoS attack ever happening because look, when a DDoS attack happens, even if it's aimed at a government agency, there are ways to see anomalous traffic. Happens all the time. Uh, there, whether it's you know you call up uh, a content delivery network 
or somebody that has access to the level two piping, whether it's level three, Akamai, yeah. uh, Oracle, whatever. The, these companies, the, the, the internet pipes are the internet pipes, so they see the traffic anyway. And we got word back that it didn't happen. And the FCC CIO uh, told us that we were wrong. It was, in fact, a DDoS attack. Uh, it you know, was tied to the net neutrality stuff that went on uh, last year. And we were wrong. We were wrong. We needed to change our story. It turns out we were right. We were right. I mean, we, I, I, a little inside baseball here after, after the behind the scenes stuff uh, went down. The juice wasn't worth the squeeze anymore, so we moved on to bigger stories. But a big shout out to Gizmodo that uh, kind of stayed on this and pressed on this to figure out that, no, there were people behind the scenes, even inside the FCC, that were like, no, this is wrong. Uh, and this needs to come out. So through FOIA and through uh, a bunch of lawsuits and through everything, and it came to light. So plus one for accountability and, and holding the government accountable, especially in the cybersecurity realm. So um, it, it is what it is. I wish the FCC CIO didn't lie to us and lie to the rest of the media. But look, it, it's, it's not the first time a government official has lied to a journalist. And then we found out months later that it's happened. The truth came out. And, you know, onward. So, okay, that will do it for the news this week. Let's get to our interview with Vic Patak. Vic talked to us about his company's continuous security validation process, how the market dictates what he reviews, and how enterprises are getting more mature with their cybersecurity decisions. Check it out. Okay, we're talking with Vic Patak, the CEO of NSS Labs here at Black Hat Vic, thanks for joining us. I know it's been a busy week for you, so I'm glad you, you were able to find some time to talk to us. Well, thank you for having me. So, Vic, your company offers continuous security validation in relation to cybersecurity products and tools, but there are tons of cybersecurity products. So mm -hmm. how do you determine what is worth measuring? Well, primarily it's, it's well, two things. So first is um, if there are f folks that are using it, customers of ours, uh, or folks in the government who ask us, um, those get to the top of the list. Um, the other thing is we do have a, a team of analysts that are looking uh, uh, beyond the horizon about what's coming next. Um, and so if it's something that looks like it's meaningful and can move the needle um, and will be something that's important for folks in the future, uh, we're trying to get ahead of that so that we can help provide visibility and guidance um, so folks know that when a product is now ready to actually be deployed versus the marketing hype. So what is the point where you figure out where something hits a fever pitch where you go, okay, we need to issue a report on this. Is it conversations here at conferences? Is it talking to people like Gartner? Is it talking to security researchers? How do you figure out when's the time to strike with a report? Yeah, it's actually all of the above. So we actually have, um, you know, uh, the most important is listening to our customers, right? Um, you know, so if uh, you know, different banks or different oil companies or, you know, you can imagine, um, you know, folks like that, they, you know, the, if they're coming to us, that's, that's probably the most important. But um, in general, we're tracking um, the growth rates of markets. We're tracking the adoption rates and growth rates of the markets, the size of the market, what's it going to be in five years. Um, those kinds of things are pretty good indicators, meaning if we're seeing something that's nascent, SD-WAN's an example we'll talk about in a little bit, I think, right? But um, it's right now about uh, $800 million this year, but it's going to be about $8 billion by okay. 2022. It's got a 69% growth rate. 
you know, it's going to be replacing MPLS. You know, we look at all these different things and say, okay, it's this is something that you know folks are going to be really needing to have hard data on. And so, you know, that's an obvious easy one. Um, where it gets a little more fuzzy if if it's a smaller market, more niche. But it, you know, but if there's enough folks that are asking, and, and our our customer base tends to be at the higher end of the spectrum, so. Um, they're the ones that are the most sensitive to security. And so um, even if something is a little bit more niche that will never really make it down to the SMB, um, that's okay. We'll test it. So developing accountability standards has been talked about for a few years now. How have you seen this conversation grow and how do you see your company fitting into that? Well, our, our mission is to uh, provide accountability and transparency uh, in the cybersecurity industry, right? That's, we put it right in front of every one of our slides and it's in the front of, you know, our, cust- our customers and in front of our employees every day. Um, I think that it's it's very, very, very important because the, uh, and in terms of how's it growing or what's happening, and I think, ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I think that folks want to have that accountability. I think the problem though right now is that nobody really seems to know how. Um, and, you know, the, the best thing I could say is that it's um, it's a journey and it's, you know, like any other journey, the first step Right, and then you know the most the most important step is the next step, um, but from for example, you know folks in uh, folks in D.C. and you know Congress and administration and whatnot, um, I think they're trying to figure out how to how to approach it, right? Because um, the more prescriptive they get, the candidly the the worse it will be, because it you know things are moving so quickly, um, and so. My personal view, and I think I've seen a few points of legislation around this, has been more around insurance, right? If you look at how, um, you know, back in the early 1900s, you know, fire was a major problem. The insurance industry came in and, you know, they really brought the hard data to bear. um, And it was a market mechanism um, by which, you know, fire safety evolved, right? And so I think that's probably the more that that, um, can be done to encourage that industry to really take a lead, the better, um, but it's hard. So. so it's funny that the insurance part, I'm wondering how you see yourself fitting in with the burgeoning cyber insurance mm-hmm. market because th- that hard data still lacks. I know we've been talking about it here at Black Hat for two or three years, but I hear the conversation more and more, and I talk to more CISOs that consider cyber insurance and are mm-hmm. putting it into their security plans. So how do you see your reports fitting into what goes into the cyber insurance table then? Well, um, there, I don't want to name names. There's, there, you know, one of the largest insurance reinsurance companies in the world uh, came to us because they found that where they were having um, to pay out for claims was highly correlated to our test reports. Okay. Um, and so um, I would say that, and there's a soon to be made, I don't want to name names again, I don't think the announcement's been made yet, there's a, for lack of a better description, there's a, um, a insurance aggregator, I think is the right term, who mm-hmm. is putting together a J.D. Powers kind of committee, right, and, um, you know, we've been asked to be the technical folks that basically say, okay, if you, if it becomes a recommended product that we're provided, you know, that we're, we've tested, that um, there'll be some sort of a discount, like a 10% discount on, on cyber insurance and things like that. So I think it's, you know, the end of the day, the hard problem for the insurance folks is twofold. One is that um, they're used to having um, a long history of actuarial data in order to go go on. Right. Um, and um, the second problem is that um, these are every network, every company, um, their their security infrastructure, their their entire infrastructure is bespoke. Uh, 
right? It's, it's everything, everything's custom. And so uh, it becomes very challenging unless you really have the, um, either the technology or the army of people to go in to really understand what, what's going on and where the risks are, right? Um, and I'd say that just like with um, other areas of insurance, uh, there's, there's, there's just going to have to be a, a certain amount of very boring, um, very tedious, uh, time-consuming, detailed work done uh, to really make, make insurance viable, right? But it's what everybody needs anyway in, in order to, secu- to be secure. Otherwise, where you know, somebody will buy a product from their favorite vendor and they say, I trust my vendor, I hope they're doing well by me, um, but as, we, as we've seen with half a trillion in losses globally in 2017, according to the World Economic Forum, okay. hope is not a strategy, right? <laughs> um, and um, you know, furthermore, with with the, you know the nation state actors and all the different pieces that they're doing to destabilize you know liberal Western democracies, and I mean okay. small L, uh, I think that you know again um, we have to get very serious very quickly um, and stop worrying about. Um, uh, we need a major in the majors, right? Which is this, you know, getting our infrastructure secure um, and doing the, the hard diligence um, is something that's really important. And again, I think insurance is the best way to drive that. So that, you know, from, from what I can see, that's that's probably the only way that, I, that it's going to work. So how does what your company does help enterprises fine-tune their security systems? I mean, obviously, if there's something, a bad rating, they're going to get rid of something, but... Is there anything more there? Yeah. Yeah, well, so that's part of why we uh, developed the continuous test, continuous security validation. So um, the system we have that, you know, now is available to enterprises and governments, um, it it started with us recognizing that the threats were changing. Um, Testing products with a malware sample that was a month old, um, which is what still, believe it or not, some testing organizations do, just wasn't relevant because the threat actors, because of, of the cat and mouse game of the good guys and the bad guys, uh, the good guys created something called reputation systems. So if you've ever gone to a website and your web browser uh, warns you that something, or your, your, your AV or whatever warns you that, hey, this is a, a suspicious site, warning, you don't want to go there. Right. Um, those things really put a time limit on how long the threat actors could have a specific um, uh, attack live. Right, so they, okay. they, they had to move quickly, right? Um, but uh, what that meant was that as a testing organization, in order for us to give relevant data to customers, we had to do the same. So our tests had to be within minutes of something becoming live in order to be fresh and, and test the security products in that time window, that short window, that is when everybody's exposed. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, okay. So once we've done that and we've automated it, then it became, um, you know, apparent that... Um, customers themselves could get valuable data uh, because if you're again our customers tend to be at the higher end of the pyramid um, they're more sensitive to security matters oftentimes they're tuning and configuring things on their own so now that we have this automated system we could make it available to to folks so that they could take their policies their configurations and understand the implications of the decisions they're making and whether or not the things the the changes they were making were making them more secure or less secure. Um, and I don't want to name names, but I can say that, you know, there's a, a very large company that um, approached us and said that um, they had a, an antivirus product that um, they had turned off 100 rules, and they don't know what the impact was, right? And this is in the... Um, it seems like 
not the way you should be going about it. Well, but so in certain industries, and this uh, this is a, a it's an oil and gas industry. Right? Okay. Availability trumps security, right? Because if you if you need to be able to access um, a pipeline or a valve. Um, and you know to turn something off to keep something from going boom, and your security product, in, you know, false positive improperly is right. not letting you do that. Like that's a problem. That's a problem, right? So um, their answer was to turn those things off. But then there there wasn't the feedback mechanism to say, well, what's the impact on our security? And furthermore, you know, why don't we take this data to the vendor and say, guys, this isn't good enough, right? I you have to let me operate my business. Why, you know, what, this is what I'm paying you for. you got to protect me. So we have the evidence now. We have the data that we can empower companies to, to take that information and go back to the security vendors or internally look and see how am I really doing, right? Measure themselves and understand where their gaps are so that, and not just in a one-time, once-a-quarter compliance kind of report, but they can, on a real, in a very real manner, understand where do they really stand and what are the things they can do to improve. You've you know looked at a lot of security products. Are you able to draw any conclusions on how much revenue a company has or how much capital they've raised on whether or not the product actually works? Oh, so that's funny. Say that. Um, there's there's almost no correlation. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, of course, there's a minimum amount that if they haven't raised it, they're probably uh, not able to execute and, and deliver a product. That's that's. Um, but uh, I've seen products that. Um, have raised hundreds of millions of dollars, and candidly, um, they're charlatans. And um, you know, it's the money's going into marketing. The money's going into um, they'll use the money itself as a marketing tool to say, "I raised X amount of money." Right. Right. Um, and uh, uh, the thing I would say is, you know, buyer beware. Right. If somebody comes to you um, with that kind of a message, like I'm so awesome because. I raised money or look at how many customers I have, like, okay, that and a dollar will buy you an ice cream bar, right? <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it's, it has nothing, there's no relevance into whether or not the product works, right? I mean, think about it, this is a, you know, example of, um, you know, General Motors in the 70s, right? Everybody knew that, I mean, my dad had a Pontiac, is three days old, his engine caught on fire. Wow. Okay. okay. Quality control was not very good. They could have said, we're, and they did say, we're General Motors, right? We're awesome. We're General Motors. Well, Everything will be fine. Right. <laughs> well, obviously, you know, until until we had some competition, um, the quality of cars didn't get better, right? So, the you know, just because you are big and have a name um, or, you know, raised a bunch of money, it, 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 there really is no correlation between that and how well a product performs. The snake oil is very, very real, apparently. Yes. So, well, especially in this industry. Right. Yeah. So speaking of that, uh, with, with the snake oil and some of the other conversations, it kind of is related into some conversations we've been having at Black Hat around the maturity of organizations when it comes to security, kind mm-hmm. of looking through the marketing and figuring mm-hmm. out what products are really good regardless of whether they come from a big behemoth company or mm-hmm. a small startup. Um, so that sort of realization that there needs to be a little bit more thought into how a security system is built inside an enterprise, um, does that mirror what you've been hearing as far as companies realizing that it's not just this, it's not just a commodity purchase? There are more fine-grained ways to, to realize how security should be done inside unique enterprises. I think so. Yeah, I think that um, uh, 
there was a, a trend a few years ago to say um, you just need an AV. The okay. idea being that they're all the same, and they're just not, right? I mean, as as we know, right? I think the um, uh, I saw a poll recently that said that um, um, the you know <laughs> the AV industry as a whole has a lower approval rating than Congress. Yikes! Right. So there's about a th- over a thirty percent turnover year over year. Meaning, if you're running pick vendor A today, chances are next year one out of three people are going to pick drop vendor A and go to vendor B. Okay. Right. And you don't do that if you're happy. You don't do that if you haven't been compromised. Right. If somebody's protecting you and doing a good job, you're not leaving them. Right. So that that high turnover rate is a indicator that something's really wrong. So. On that note, so, so that gets to the commodity question, right? So yeah, it, right. it really isn't a commodity. This gets okay. to you. You need to, you need to take uh, care and understand what the what the objective of the vendor is. I don't want to name names. I just met one recently, uh, earlier today, um, and they use a lot of words that are large enterprise, but their engineering team is geared towards the the mid market and consumer. So I'll just let me just let me just back up. So, um, in the entire AV industry started off as an example in the consumer market, okay. Um, and if you look at their pricing, okay, it's fifty dollars, seventy dollars per person. If you ever go online and try and go dot right, um, if you're a small business, and maybe you'll get a five seat license for two hundred dollars, right? So they're getting forty dollars a seat, fifty dollars a seat, right, for their suites. If you go to a very large enterprise, if you go to a big bank with you know, a hundred thousand seats. They're probably paying five to seven dollars a seat. Okay, so let's just do the math here. You can get from a big bank five hundred thousand a year, maybe seven hundred thousand a year, right? Or they can go to a lot of individuals. Let's just say, you know, um, ten thousand individuals, and get the same same money. Right. Right. You know, they, would you rather get the forty dollars or fifty dollars a seat or the seven five to seven? Who are you building your product for, right? And it's just because the AV industry, where it, where it came up, they just they broke the market dynamics, which is why there's the new advanced endpoint stuff, which is really designed for enterprises, right? They're you know they they're not trying to serve a dual purpose of saying I'm going to protect mom and dad and try and protect you know the biggest banks in the world, okay. right? Um, and you know, again, in the AV industry, you had because you had that problem that these products were designed for mom and dad, but they were selling it to the big bank, banks because, or the big oil companies, for five dollars a seat or seven because they're the, the big guys were smart and they went, it's really not worth that much to me. You built it for mom and dad, right? Um, you know, I've got a, I've got, you know, nation states after me. That's where the EDR market came into play, the endpoint detection and response, right? And they partnered with the AV industry, so to speak, right? Um, and that, so they said, and now what's happening is even that's, that's, that's not working, right? It's great. You told me that something happened, you know, an hour ago, but it still didn't stop it, which is again, where this new advanced endpoint technology with some of the new vendors that are coming in, um, next gen endpoint kind of thing. Right. And there's a huge difference because those products are built for the, the bigger companies. Okay. They don't even have consumer products. Right. And so if you're a business, you know, um, you should be thinking about those kinds of things, right? And to be to be fair, there's a number of folks that started in the consumer world that are, without a doubt, um, making the transition to the enterprise, and they do have products that are specifically designed for it. But just because you have a big name, 
or because somebody raised a lot of money, I, I would caution and try and say, well, who are they? What do they raise it for? Right? Right. If they're, if they're raising it for incident response, don't assume that just because they're really good at incident response that they've got a product that actually works. Interesting. It's reflected in the conversations that we've been having that just from the buyer standpoint, from an enterprise mm-hmm. standpoint, those are the conversations that they're having with the vendors, and it's clear that the vendors have responded. So that's it's good to hear that we're all hearing the same thing and yeah. things to seem to be moving forward. But speaking of enterprise, uh, enterprise technology, you just released, your company just released a big report this week. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you found with SD-WAN. So SD-WAN, software-defined software wide area network. I guess the, the first is that um, overall the products were pretty good, right? Meaning that um, when you start talking about an industry that, you know, it was 400 million last year, 200 million the year before. Industry, right? You know, there's always a concern of are they ready to make the leap to the prime time? And um, as an industry, while there was differentiation between the products, um, most of the products met a, a minimum bar that um, wasn't, you know, I don't mean to say this differently, met a bar that said that they had a high enough quality that they should be considered as an industry technology, right? You pick A, you pick B, you pick C, there may be different ones that are better or worse for you. Um, But as a whole, um, yeah, I I actually buy, because I buy the idea that it's going to go from 800 million to 8 billion in four years, right? I I wouldn't have bought it if the marketing people were saying it and all the analysts were saying, here's the numbers based upon the models of, uh, cut over from MPLS, which is a carrier um, private private circuit, basically. Okay. Right? So if you're in San Francisco and I'm in Los Angeles and we want to have our data privately communicated, you'll buy a, an MPLS circuit. Well, it's expensive. There's all kinds of issues. Um, you know, and the, the SD-WAN technology replaces that, in theory. Okay. Right? But it, it works over the Internet, and in theory it can steer and sort of prioritize traffic and make sure that your voice and your video quality is there. And um, it does all kinds of things for scaling in terms of, you know, easy to deploy and, you know, and so on, right? So um, the concern when you start talking about a technology like that with that kind of a growth rate is uh, the market may want it, but, uh, you know, is the engineering there yet, right. right? I mean, everybody may be ready, but if the engineers haven't finished, right, then... You know, it wasn't going to work, right? right. You, you could potentially have some real problems. Um, and um, what we saw was that, uh, yeah, the engineers, um, you know, they, they hit the deadline, right? So it, it's ready okay. to ready to take off. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that um, uh, the uh, from a um, uh, uh, security perspective, there's a few vendors that had security uh, in the products, and um, uh, they they did pretty well. Right, and what's interesting there is that if you, if the next step after SD WAN is what we call WAN Edge, Wide Area Network Edge, okay, right, where there's a collapsing, so your firewall and your SD WAN device, you know, those things come together, maybe even with a wireless, right, and um, for that to happen, you know, we need to start seeing these products start, you know, start to have sort of mixed capabilities, okay, right, and we're starting to see that, and they were pretty good, right? Um, you know, there's definitely folks in the market who are making claims uh, for SD-WAN capabilities. There's a couple of them that uh, just don't, it depends on what you want it for. If you're just trying to do 
Um, offsite backup, they're fine. But if you really want to have um, sort of the killer app for SD-WAN is, is probably video, right? If you really want to do video collaboration, um, they're just not suitable. They don't have products. They're, they're not there yet. Okay. Maybe in a year, but they're not there yet. But most, I say there was, there was three products that stood out as really being outstanding for video. So um, that was the Fortinet, um, the VMware, and the Tolari product. Um, all were really outstanding for video. Um, the folks that were, were pretty good, you know, you had Forcepoint was pretty good with it. Uh, Versa was pretty good with it. Um, and there were, there were a couple of others, right? But if, if you pick any of those products, you're, you're in pretty good shape. Um, the, the other thing I'd say is that um, there was a dramatic difference in pricing uh, with these different products. Uh, uh, something as you'd expect, right? Meaning that when you have a market growing that quickly and everyone's trying to figure out who's the Cadillac and who's the Hyundai, right? Okay. I mean, they're just trying to, trying to figure those things out. So there's a really broad disparity in pricing. So when you're looking at SD-WAN, it's really important to figure out what do you need. I mean, read the report. Um, you know, give us a call if you have questions. We're helping to have yeah, an answer. Yeah, if somebody wants to read the report, where can they find it? NSSLabs, all one word, dot com. And it, it's right there. You should see SD-WAN um, right there. And the last thing I'll say about the test that was really interesting was that um, the we had one experience, and this gets back to sort of responsible in testing and all that. So um, uh, there's one vendor, and I'll name the name here, Cisco. Okay. All right, who... Um, their team told us that we should purchase their product, That you know, so we went and purchased it. And then a different team within Cisco, when we went to activate the license, refused to activate it. Mm-hmm. So we bought the product, and it's now, I mean, they took our money, but they're not actually letting us use it. Why? We can't get an answer for them in writing. I can tell you they don't, they don't want us testing it. And the question is, you should ask yourself, why don't they want us testing it? I mean, this was not exactly a high bar test. Huh. So, so um, and that's one of the major vendors in the market. So, uh, did you get a refund? Not yet. <laughs> not yet. I mean, I got one of the people there offered it verbally. I said, you know, put it in writing, and I'll, you know, and uh, never got it. So interesting. So we end um, each of these interviews with a random question. Mm-hmm. And since we're at Black Hat, what's your favorite thing you've seen so far? Oh uh, wow! Um, what is my favorite thing I've seen so far? Um, there's a, a Corvette on the show floor. Mm-hmm that um, is like a 1963 that is just absolutely gorgeous. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so there's one, not, uh, a, friend, a friend of mine was telling me there's not many of them left because the wheelbase is so short that people go really fast but couldn't steer, and they wrap themselves around telephone poles. Yikes. Yeah. Right? Yikes. Right? Yeah. right. Okay. Right. It's, I don't know if you may have, you may have seen it. If, you know, if, you, if you're down there, it's a white one with the, the, the blue stripe. Okay. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. I'm yeah. Go check it out. Yeah, it's pretty, it was pretty cool. So one more random question, only because uh, we, we're leaving soon, and I'm staring out the hotel window, and it looks like it is 8,000 degrees outside. It's hot in Vegas. You're based in Austin. It's hot in Austin. Yeah. Jen and I are based in D.C. It's hot in D.C. How do you avoid the heat? What's the best way to not let the heat get to you? Uh, if you come up with an answer, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Stumped him. We stumped him on that one. Okay, Vic, appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Vic. I don't think he's the only one stumped on how to survive the seemingly 450-degree heat here in Vegas. So hot. Here's an idea for next year. Let's do all the research briefings in hotel pools. Securiosity splashdown. Mark it down now. We're doing it. (laughs) 
We'll be back next week to talk about all the fun from DEF CON. Talk to you next week. Stay curious.